Hi, this is State Delegate Janelle Wilkins from District 20 in Montgomery County, and you're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the best source of news and notes on Maryland politics and policy. The Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Your ears are not deceiving you. This is not Kevin Canale. It's the height of the legislative session. Mako's policy team, they're scattered to the four winds, testifying at tables all across Annapolis. And so you get the B team here. This is Michael Sanderson taking the microphone to kick things off this week. And we're really glad to have a special guest. If you're a regular listener of the Conduit Street podcast, and I hope that you are, you know that a good bit of what we cover are local government issues. We talk about stuff from the county's point of view all all the time. Our sister organization, the Maryland Municipal League, is often right alongside us, standing up for their cities and towns and all the same kind of issues that you hear from Mako at the witness stand and on the podcast. So I'm really glad to have with us today the MML CEO, Teresa Kuhns. She's here with us today. Teresa, thanks so much for joining. Well, thank you for having me. It is fantastic. Well, this you and I have opportunity to sort of be in the room together all the time. We serve on some boards and other things like that as leaders of our local government groups. So this felt like a natural to bring you into the fold. We like talking about local government issues generally. Sometimes they're county specific. But a lot of times it's just like interesting stuff going on in politics and policy. Mm-hmm. Um, MML is a big stakeholder and all that sort of stuff. And while you're new to MML, you're not exactly new to the Annapolis game. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up in this role with the municipal league. Absolutely. I actually ended up taking a backwards role in the state government. And I started downtown in DC when I graduated college at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce for most of my career, working in their political area, as well as their board governance for the U.S. Chamber. And then I went to the regional aspect. I went to the Greater Washington Board of Trade. And so I got a a little bit of a deeper dive. And about eight years ago, I saw a great opportunity to represent the realtors in Southern Maryland, where I'm from. And I've had the great pleasure of doing that, as well as helping with contract lobbying during the session. And so I've been before our session chairs quite a bit. Happy to see um, some of our Southern Maryland leaders in new positions, especially in economic matters, where we'll lead to in a little bit. But that is my background. I went from the national perspective to state, regional, local, and now back to the state, representing all 157 cities and towns. It's a great honor. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm, in, I'm envisioning that like the sea captain with the big, uh, the, the, the big periscope sort of like yes. trying to dial, dial in and dial out and that sort of thing. You're at the federal level, you're at the local regional level, now we're mm-hmm. a statewide group of representing local governments and local services. So it's an interesting mix there, but I think it would be tough for someone who didn't understand the lay of the land of Maryland and our structure of government and where local governments fit in to take a leadership role with the municipal league. You know, representing those local governments, but serving at a regional level and connecting with, I'm sure, both county and municipal leaders in Southern Maryland sort of prepped you for what's on their plate, what are they thinking about, and what would be their heart and soul if you became you know, a, a leader and an organizer for their groups. Is that fair? Absolutely. It's been a great um, education is the best way to put it for the last eight years specific to Maryland and how our groups work, having so many different forms of county and municipal government. 
for our listeners who might not reside in an incorporated city or town, and those are the, the members of the municipal league, 157 members, right? Yes. For, for the folks who don't live in an incorporated city or town, if, especially if you're a longtime Marylander, give us like the, the two or three sentence level version of what municipal governments do on balance that would be different from what county governments do, or what are the things that are top of line for most of your municipal members? You know, I think about that a lot, and I really do believe that we are, the best way to put it, we are very similar in our processes and our services we provide the residents. So right now in Maryland, we represent about 2 million residents just in our municipalities. So we represent from Annapolis, Baltimore, over to Ocean City. We even have Gaithersburg and a few folks in Montgomery. We have quite a few on the Eastern Shore, about 57, so almost a whole third of our state of municipalities on the Eastern Shore, and then Prince George's County comes in behind with 27. So you'll see your services that you get as a resident, including sometimes, and it really varies because there's four forms of municipal government. So it's hard to pinpoint exactly the services they get, but each one does operate just a little bit differently. So it really depends where you live in the state. (laughs) Right. I sometimes get a little stumped at that question myself, especially with my extended family who live outside of Maryland and don't even don't know anything about the structure of government here. They're from California or Ohio or somewhere else. And I sometimes settle on like we're in the quality of life business, right? That that what local Absolutely. government, we, you know, we pick up the trash. We want to help your community uh, have the amenities that make you like being there to live and play and work and, and so forth. And I feel like that's a good way to tie a lot of it together. And some of that are like the things that are specific to counties, whether it's, you know, libraries or other stuff mm-hmm. like that. But I think municipal and county leaders sort of share that same vision. You lead at the local level because you're proud of where you are and you want your residents, your constituents to feel the same way. I think that's a fair way. Right? Yes. And I think we complement one another more than anything else. We not only the quality of life, but really the local leaders, both at our level as well as the county, we're the closest to the people. We're the ones getting those phone calls when garbage is not picked up or something happens down the road. They're calling their mayors, they're calling their commissioners. And it's a it's a fascinating world to see how touched our folks are and how much they are connected to their own residents. Yeah. Oh, that, that's well put. So in the way that our members are are sort of hand in glove in a lot of ways and complement one another with with services and, and and representation at the local level, our two organizations are very often complementing one another mm-hmm. on big policy issues and so forth. And, and that's one of the things I thought it would be timely to bring you on to talk a little bit because you and I were not on the same panel. It was sort of back-to-back panels uh, just a few days ago in the House Economic Matters Committee talking about cannabis reform. And yes. So it feels like, I mean, this is one of these big, broad topics. Like we, we know that this, we knew this bill was coming. The voters approved the constitutional amendment back in November. So we knew an implementation bill was going to have to come this session. Now we've seen the bill, the House hearing has been held, and that was sort of an all-afternoon affair. Mm-hmm. I felt like the podcast might be a good way for us to sort of unpack some of the stuff that we heard at the hearing that the committee members were asking about and interested in, and then kind of walk through some of these local government issues. I mean, that is our strong suit to talk about local <laughs> government stuff. Absolutely. And so, so like you and I testified at that hearing and sort of deliberately tried to orchestrate our dance steps around different points to cover. But well we're, put. We're, we really have, we have largely the same interests here, the local governments do. 
So I, I thought that would be a good use of time for our podcast listeners, but also a good way for you and I to spend some time together, you know, just sort of swapping stories a little bit. Sound fair? Sounds great. Yeah. So first, I, I would say it would be rude of us to just talk about local government issues, which, I mean, that's kind of our job at the witness stand. We don't come up there and say, well, on the on the 75 page bill, let me give you 113 observations. Well, you can't <laughs> do that. You get two minutes. So you show up and you give your quick scattershot of here's like I tried to talk about three local government issues and then read my testimony if you want the other stuff. But I don't know. That hearing ended up going for five hours. Five we were hours there to, what hour four before we were called in right. the hallway. We couldn't even right. get seats right. in the room. That's right. Yeah. We was, finally got in the room where it happened, as the Hamilton nerd in me would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was exactly right. So that, <laughs> even even the process of working our way into the room was was a step by step process. But by that time, the committee had already seemingly been deluged with what seemed like pretty tricky issues. I mean, even with, I think, a substantial, like probably almost everybody in the room is saying, yes, we want this bill to pass. We want this Mm -hmm. to be implemented wisely. But now I've got these amendments or I've got these concerns. There were were some people just saying clean support sounds great, but a lot of people said. Oh, I would say the majority were amendments. It was interesting. Even, Even clean support, People who were early started talking about, but I do have concerns about this yes. part of the bill. <laughs> so, it's one way to be favorable to the chairman. We agree completely, however. Right. <laughs> yes, I mean, that, that's fine. It's a time-honored tradition to try and yes. you know, position yourself <laughs> wisely uh, for you know influential testimony. There were a few, a few things that I thought were interesting on, on its face that really weren't local government issues. I mean, we know that elements of the bill trying to promote an equitable transition to the new Mm -hmm. legal market and making sure there's a really wide opportunity for different demographics to participate. I mean, Maryland looks looks like in this bill, and from what we heard from Mr. Chairman as he presented the bill, I heard a lot of references to, you know, other states have been disappointed in what they got. And even Maryland felt disappointed by the rollout of like growers licenses for the medical side and, you know, ended up, you know, in court over diversity in that process and so forth. So, okay, learn from others' mistakes and maybe learn from our own mistakes and do better this go around. A lot of conversation about trying to promote equity, broad participation and reflect communities who have suffered from the sort of war on drugs from the decades leading up to now. I would say it's just been a very thoughtful process compared to how other states have ruled it out. And it's a balancing act at the end of the day. You're trying to get every piece of the pie recognized and making sure it's going to the right place. But I believe our two drafters, both um, Chairman Wilson and Chairman Atterbury, did a great job with making this a balancing and thoughtful process to get us to this point. It's 88 pages. It's a lot to unpack. Right. I agree with you. Hats off on showing up with like the architecture here reflects that a lot of time has gone into this. And the House of Delegates in particular has had sort of standing work on this for some time. The mm-hmm. Senate had a draft of a bill for the last couple of years and so forth. But the two chambers coming together, I think, is helpful for everybody. You might feel the same way, but I was surprised by the number of people who are in the hemp industry who were talking <laughs> about the bill. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's not something I know a lot about, I'll confess. Same. But, so that was eye-opening for me. And like putting myself in the shoes of a delegate in that room, I would probably be sort of scratching my chin over, yeah, that, I mean, there, there's the potential here for 
another legal industry to be to become you know dwarfed or sort of like drowned out by the new legal cannabis industry, I kind of get the idea that, hey, you know, you changed these laws and the, the feds passed a farm bill several years ago. And so I've, I've been growing hemp for CBD and other stuff like that. And now suddenly this bill threatens to put me completely out of business. I hadn't thought of that angle before, but I'm sure the committee's thinking about that now. Oh, absolutely. And I think the chairman said more than once that it's about the intoxicants on the hemp side that they're worried about. And I can understand and appreciate that as well. It's it's an entire area I did not think about before we went there Friday morning and heard for three hours this will put out the hemp industry. And look, I'm a 90s kid. I had a hemp purse and Doc Martens and all that stuff. I don't know a thing (laughs) about it outside of that. So I was really more, oh, I never even thought about the effects this could have on another industry in that sense. Another piece that I guess is tricky to get right. We're not the first state to to have Mm -hmm. legalized medical use for cannabis first and then to consider adult use for, you know, what do you want to call it, recreational or whatnot. But um, the the notion of what do you do with current license holders who have a license for medical and and would like to expand into the commercial. And like we heard a lot of existing license holders making the case that the license fee for transitioning from one to both is going to be contentious, right? I mean, I mean, that's probably the easiest way to wrap that up. It's, it sounds like there's another balancing act to be had there to make that a possible transition. That's probably got to be part of the way to make this market open relatively quickly. I mean, some of these places already have buildings and outfits and security and all the kind of stuff that goes with it. So whether you have a, a second doorway to come in to be on the commercial side or whatever, I don't know. But that, that seems to be part of a short-term transition is a pathway for the medical to become both, I guess. And I think that they did recognize that if you had a medical, you could go ahead and it would overturn to this the recreational side. But yeah. I, from what I could tell, they were also, and this goes back to the thoughtful comment, making sure this wasn't going to be an out-of-state run industry. They wanted folks in the state Mm -hmm. to have that first crack at it, which I appreciate. And it's only going to make us more economically strong, and it'll help our local folks grow if they want to get into this business. I I believe they were trying to avoid these multi-state operators in Maryland, in that conversation piece, at least. I, yeah, I agree with you. We heard that reference to, you know, big hitters or, you know. Yes, the, the, something like that. Big, yes. big, big, big <laughs> the big boys. I always wear it as big boys. <laughs> big boys, right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. It all like the tracks, right? So, so all those things I think are interesting and important part of the conversation ahead. You and I at the table got a chance to, to plant a couple of flags on some mm-hmm. local government issues. And I wanted to talk through that stuff a little bit. I guess maybe one piece is it, the most obvious is what happens with the stream of revenues on this newly legalized, regulated, and taxed marketplace. And we end up in a kind of a tricky spot there. I mean, one <laughs> thing is, amidst these other issues that, that we just kind of talked through, there were a number of stakeholders saying, well, I'd like a piece of the pie. Like my, my yeah, I was surprised by some of the requests, to be honest. Right. Right. And and the committee committees seem to feel like, oh, you know, here here they go again. So you're somebody who wants, you know, I want 10% of the money or two million dollars or or whatever. And I don't know. I mean, I guess the committee's got to sort through the bill already sort of envisions there's gonna be a pot of revenue coming from what is effectively a state 
sales tax. The bill, as it's introduced, doesn't it doesn't authorize your cities and towns or my counties no. that their own local rates. Some some places have done that and said it could be a local tax. You do your own thing. It instead says we're going to just subject this to a state sales tax. But then it, it, it says, OK, out of the revenue that comes from that, some's going to go for the administration of the program. And then mm-hmm. some's going to go for these sort of community based funds for remediation and, and to try and target areas that have maybe suffered at the hands of the illegal trade for years. Sure. And then a few other little mouths to feed, and then it becomes just falls to the state's bottom line. And we're in a weird spot that as local governments, we felt like we should be part of that bottom line, but instead we're one of those little mouths to feed along the way, which puts us in an awkward situation a little bit. Absolutely. I will say as MML CEO, it is one of the first times we've ever been included in tax revenue. So I want to first say we're, we are grateful to be included. Mm-hmm. Um, we are one of 10 states that does not have a local sales tax for municipalities. And that's something that we have to take a look at in terms of the future. Cannabis is a great first foothold for us at this point, and we're happy to be included. But when we look at the dollars that are being in this bill, the way it's currently written, and you heard my testimony, let's say one of my localities, and I'll take College Park where our current president is from, and sure. they have a dispensary that sells a million dollars a year. College Park, University of Maryland, go Terps, the college town and enforcement and all those concerns would get $900. And that's the way the bill's written. What is $900 going to imply in terms of enforcement, zoning, comp plans? And, and you get that. I mean, I, I come from the realtor background. I've sat through many more master comp plans than I would have liked to have done in seven years. And the public hearings involved, the public planning and task forces, it's a monstrosity. And many of our municipalities don't even have zoning staff and zoning members. They are using consultants. And so I look at that and I shake my head. And it's not because we're trying to be greedy. At the end of the day, local government, county and cities and towns, we want to implement a new business correctly. We are the front line for safety, the enforcement, the training and education. And so the revenue side, it kind of blows my mind. And it's how you ended your testimony. It's a little bit outside of the same universe we expected to be in. I mean, I have, you're not wrong. <laughs> I mean, I have like a silly story that maybe you know, reflects on me a little bit that, that I'm, I don't know, Pollyanna or whatnot. But so when I first heard, okay, you know, the bill's about to drop and what's going to be in it is 1.5% going to local governance. Mm-hmm. Now I immediately thought, okay, I get how this is going to work. It's going to be, we're going to, we're going to follow the Michigan model, which actually turns out to be really close to what we're doing. In Michigan, there's a statewide 10% tax levied by the state. They don't authorize their locals to do their own thing. But what they do is they take 30% of that revenue, which is like the equivalent of a 3% tax. And they send that amount back to their cities, towns, and counties. So 30% of the state revenue goes back to local governments. It's the equivalent of like a 3% tax. Yes. Okay. And I was asked directly, what do you propose? Right. <laughs> That's yeah. my answer. And they all yeah. laughed. <laughs> but but, but when, when I first heard, without having bill text in front of me, I heard that the local share is going to be 1.5%. I just naturally assumed, oh, it's going to be like the equivalent of a 1.5% tax. So we'll yes, get- that's what like, I thought be, as well. Right. It's going to be something like, 
here, the state's going to do a, a 6% sales tax and you guys get 25% of it or a 10% tax and you get 15% of it, the equivalent to a one and a half percent on the gross. But the bill, this is you know for folks who haven't read the bill or don't understand what the heck we're talking about, what the bill says is our 1.5% is of the tax revenue. So our effective tax rate is not 3% like Michigan or 1.5% of the total. It's one and a half percent of the 6% sales tax. That's where you get this kind of dwarf sounding 900 bucks for a million dollar establishment. My whiteboard in my office, I had to have one of my Afghan team members do the math because I said, that can't be right. And we went through, it's still sitting there. I I just couldn't believe it. And again, appreciative to be involved. It's the total amount at the end of the day becomes what we, what, how did he put it? Justin on our team is fantastic. He's my smart math one. It was like 0.09 cents and it was less than, and as it was just amazing to me, I'm still kind of I was right. not sure how that's going to help. And I, I, it's something, right? It's better yeah. than nothing, yeah. however. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, the bill's going to get worked over. Like, I oh, mean, absolutely. It, right. So we, we, we know that, that the, the two committees in the House, the Senate's going to go through its own process and its own hearings and so forth. So the final product, I mean, this does feel, you, you've, you, you know, that you're a, you're a veteran of the, the wars in Congress. Every once in a while, word gets around D.C. that there's something called the must-pass bill. And usually that those words come out because they mean get your little amendment tied to that bill because that bill has to like the defense appropriation bill is an obvious must pass. Absolutely, and that's, you know it, that's that's like a parlance from from DC. But this is the classic must pass bill. The the voters said yes in November and make it so come July one. And so this year's bill needs to basically have you know get the deck chairs in order because we're gonna we'll do the cruise is launching. And I'll say, it's not my concern that not passing, we know it's going through. My concern becomes we're going to have 10 weeks to teach and educate all our local folks how to implement this by July 1st. I think we'll get a solution on revenues that we're both happier with and our members will be happier with. But the starting point was a shocking moment. (laughs) I mean, I I guess on on the tax issue, uh, not to descend super deep into tax policy, but sure. I mean, I do think another thing that was clear in the presentation of the bill and when we've been when we had a, our own conversation with chair, I think Maryland is trying, you know, the leadership putting this bill together, trying to say, we don't want to have a pig, you know, like a pile on tax situation to the point where the legal recreational oh, yeah. commercial buyers say, you know what, I'm better off just going back to my old guy. Who, yeah, who's keeping the black market seller that on way. The corner, yes. right? So you don't you don't want to inadvertently tax your way out of being a relevant player. So the idea of like we'll do like this bill says a six percent tax, and then over a few years we'll ramp up to a ten percent tax. Mm-hmm. That's a deliberate effort to say let's not have tax become counterproductive for advancing the, the various like the social justice you know interests of the bill and so forth. So and we're not looking to get in the way of that no. as a central policy. We're not saying- And hey, I respect add. the approach. I do. Yeah. I think yeah. the approach is correct in terms of we're trying to keep that black market down. And I know Chairman Wilson mentioned deaths and rest attached to it. And he's trying to make that go away as much as he can. I respect the approach. And you look at Colorado, I think their legal market's only bringing in $200 million a year in terms of tax revenue. So we know it's not going to be this huge windfall right. of money. But in terms of- the roles that you and I play and for our members, 
we have to implement this correctly. That's, that's all I can get yeah. back to. Yeah. And that's really what this would do. Yeah. I think that that's well said. So, so the tax stuff is important. And I think how to sort that out is one of many things that the, the General Assembly needs to tie down. One thing that, that I talked about at the hearing a little bit, and I know your members share, is, mm-hmm. is zoning. So you know, among the things yes. that we do on behalf of our neighborhoods is sort of land use, planning and zoning, sort of making, you know, this is the area where we want to have principally residential. Here's the place for commercial activity. Over there is where we want to have agriculture, industrial over here. And you you place limitations on what kind of stuff can grow in different places. So you're doing placemaking and community building that way. You do it all with, you know, big stakeholder, broad input, all that sort of stuff. Okay, so where do you locate the the sales facility, the dispensary, for a product like this, which is which is clearly not the same thing as just a dollar store or a CVS or whatever, right? I mean, whatever whatever you think of this marketplace, it's probably not a great idea to stick it right next to a middle school. Absolutely, right. I, I'll so, say I want to tell you a complimentary. I like the word place making. That's the perfect way of saying it. It really is. This is how you build your community in the zoning piece. Right. So, so we've got. We've got an issue in this bill, and it's it's a little quirky because to come into economic matters with half of the Ways and Means Committee sitting in because it's a doubly you know, two committees assigned to one bill, but neither of those committees really has expertise over land use issues. It's really in the House of Delegates, it would be the environment and transportation yeah. issues. Yeah, you know, that committee has a lot more familiarity with land use and zoning issues and so forth, but. It was actually like a second day in a row I was in, in ECM talking about zoning stuff. I think, you know, we've got to work out, the bill right now has some new terms that like it talks about reasonable zoning. That That's what we're allowed to apply and that we can't through zoning or other things unduly <laughs> burden the license holder. And, and that's the catchphrase this year. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think we're interested in unduly burdening anyone. And I don't think we're interested in unreasonable zoning. That's not what we're like. We're not trying to, to preserve the right to do you know awful things, but those two terms are not defined anywhere else in the universe. And they're certainly not defined in the Maryland courts in the way that generally speaking, court cases have sort of defined what you can and can't do through local zoning. So I look back at the bill that authorized the locating of you know, well, the last time we went through a constitutional amendment to locate state-regulated facilities was for slots. And in that bill specifically, the bill said the, the facilities are subject to local zoning. Simple. Basically, just like, you know, the way you do local zoning should apply to these facilities as well. Absolutely. Just, you know, so I think that's the simplest way to do it. It's a great just, way to address it. I think that's the simplest way for this bill to read. But at the very least, we want to make sure that we can steer these facilities. Like, fine, they get their license, they want to serve in this community, got it, but not right there. That's a terrible spot. And that would, you know, that, that would be a, a bad place for obvious reasons. Let's have a setback or let's make thousand feet away from school or other things like that. I think that passes the smell test for us to ask for, for local government. Yeah, it's, it's just too vague right now. We need to become clear and not to take it too much further, but we have licenses. Just to sell, let's say the dispensaries, but we also have the consumption licenses, which are about 50. And that needs to be even 
probably a little bit stricter in terms of where it can be consumed because of the schools, because of local, let's say, you know, brothers and sisters club down the street and those types of things. Yeah. I still can't get my head around the onsite consumption, Mm -hmm. but I think that's, I think it's just, it's a function of my generation. So, (laughs) so it's okay. Like I, I get that this marketplace is coming and like, I get it as a matter of policy. And I get that in some, in some period of time, all these transition things are going to have washed out and we'll feel like, why was this such a big deal? You know, at the, at the moment I get why, you know, Police officers are asking about, well, you know, what if you smell marijuana in a car when you pull over for a routine stop? And like all these, I think they're kind of transition issues. So, you know, anyhow, I'm, I'm, I'm with you that the, the siting of those facilities, they put language in there saying we've got local authority to guide and restrict those. I think that makes a lot of sense. But the sale itself, I think, like probably similar scrutiny is reasonable. So I agree. Anything else in the bill? I mean, so like we kind of talked through big stuff. I I mean, I I would say um, both of our organizations have an interest in the model used in most other states Mm -hmm. for local governments to opt out and say, we don't want to have the sellers or we don't want to have the growers in our area. That is not in this bill. And I don't know. I think I think we both read the tea leaves and we talked about that in our written testimony. I didn't emphasize it in my oral testimony just looking at the two minute clock, it sounds to me like that ship has sailed here. Do you, do you agree on that generally? I think that ship has sailed. I will point out Chairman Wilson at one point, maybe hour five in this hearing, did say if a locality had already put it in a zoning previous to January 1st of this year, that could stay. But I, hmm. it all depends what amendments come out this week because they were yeah. due Wednesday. So I don't know if that was just a flippant response to a question specifically about it. I think um, Delegate Pippi asked a question, but we have to see what comes out of that. I know we actually have a local mayor who did have it put into a zoning in their comp plan last year. I don't know if that stays for the opt-out piece. Right. So I, I think the smart money is it doesn't stay. I think yeah. you know this wasn't an issue where when the voters were asked what they think about it, it wasn't like a patchwork all over the states. This wasn't an issue that it passed in 14 counties, but 10 counties said no. It was 23 to 1. I think Garrett County, at, the, at least at the county level, Garrett County was the only county that voted okay. no on the referendum issue. So to some degree, I think there's some political cover saying this is statewide policy. We don't need to have a, a mishmash. And I, I don't know that I've got member counties who are chomping at the bit to wipe this out. So no, yeah. and I've only heard from a handful of municipalities saying they'd right. really like to do that. The question I'm getting on this is becoming um, from more delegates. Delegates are asking, are you going to do an opt out? We, we don't know if we want this. And it was an, in, it's been interesting to get those questions and field them so far. Right. Right. Okay, so like this is one of the most interesting bills of the session, and I, I thought your conversation and, and discussion about revenues and how this is connected to public service while you were at the witness stand talking to a tired but pretty engaged committee, right? you, you got mm-hmm. the same vibe that I did. Like People were listening very actively. Yes. I, I, I saw the, the body language while you were speaking, and I felt the same thing while I was speaking, that members were paying attention, taking notes listen carefully. So hats off to them. It was you know, a reasonably long day on one bill and they were still awfully engaged hours deep. So um, I, um, hats off to economic matters. And, to them. Yeah. So it was a good setting. I, I think you got some really good points across. And uh, so now we are stakeholders on what will be a 
an adventure ahead. I think, you know, next two or three weeks, you said, you know, they're gathering amendments and they'll, I mean, what's the over under on number of amendments submitted <laughs> by stakeholders, like 50, hundred, I, I don't you know. I, I would point, I mean, it's probably up there is my guess. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> then there'll be dozens of suggestions and, and many of them will overlap with one another, but they'll have, okay, here are the 11 different groups that want a cut of the money and here's who, who asked for what and that sort of stuff. Sure. And, and then, you know, some of these other standalone issues like our, our stuff with zoning and, and stuff like that. I think you bundle all that together. The committee's got work to do, but I don't know. I This this feels like the House and Senate can kind of agree who's going to work on this first. You know, so maybe that maybe the House moves a bill first and then the Senate decides to work from the House bill. And that way they don't end up falling in love with two separate work products that are at an intermediate stage. That might be a good way to do this. Yeah, I wonder if it goes to conference committee at the end of the day in terms of how climate change was handled last year, going back and forth and trying to make sure something comes out. I think the Senate hearing is March 9th. I think I have that down correctly. So that's the next step in terms of our roles in public speaking, at least. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, this is so for folks who are watching, you know, watching the show generally in Annapolis, this is. It's not the only thing on people's minds. It is certainly in tennis terms, like this bill was billed as center court for this yes. session and is basically going to stay there uh, right up, maybe up until the end. But I think uh, I think the amount of attention and interest in this bill is paramount for this session. And that's OK. That's OK. There's, you know, it's a, it's a big topic. You want to get it right. And like you said, 88 page bill with an awful lot of stakeholders, you know, raising their concerns. Fine. Hear it all out. Uh, get it all done. So, so while we've got you on the pod, let's tie up cannabis for the moment. But anything else on your mind? We've got, you know, we've got the, the teeming millions of regular listeners of the Conduit Street Pod. <laughs> they love local government. They love state level policy and politics. Anything else that you might like to share with our eager listeners? Our eager listeners, hmm, you're mostly county level folks, so give MML some love. Take a look at what we're doing. Check out our events and our social media. You certainly follow us along with Conduit Street. We love the podcast. We listen to it at the office. So thank you for having us on as a whole. We appreciate it. Thank you. Well, we're really thrilled to do that. And uh, we will definitely put in the show notes. We'll put some stuff on our blog. We'll put some show notes to the MML website. Uh, there's a lot of things that, that our two organizations collaborate on, but a lot of Absolutely. innovative things that you and your team are doing on behalf of municipal members. And we steal some of your ideas from time to time, shamelessly doing so, but that's a, it's a, <laughs> a good positive tradition to, to, to find a good thing that your neighbor is doing, copy it and, uh, and, and try and uh, build from there. So I'll give you credit that your team has, has had some breakthroughs that we have been happy to draft on. And when it works both ways, it's, it's for the good for both of us. So absolutely. We appreciate the partnership all the way. <laughs> Terrific. Well, folks, let's leave it there. We'll wrap up this week's walk down Conduit Street. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please go ahead and subscribe. That way, all these episodes will be delivered directly to the device of your choice. And feel free to just smash that five-star review. Isn't that how you're supposed to say it? We want to get people to know and love our stuff. So smash that button. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, the Conduit Street blog. So for Teresa Kuhns, this is Michael Sanderson signing off. We will talk to you soon.